Uh, welcome to the first episode of The Grey Space. It's a, a medium that I've been cultivating and sort of dancing with for maybe six months or a year. And this is the first episode. I'm really enjoying the process of um, or the idea of offering people this little moment to listen to. Um, my first interview here, as you'll hear, is with Chris Frape, a real delicate distillation of what the essence of life is, really, and that comes through um, stories of his surfing, his injury, and essentially narcotics addiction that really takes us on a journey to what ultimately sort of lands at some gorgeous um, moments of deep wisdom and and just a fun character to sit with. Some fascinating elements of his life is that I think you've been to 400 gigs um, per year over the last 20 years? I would say around 100 shows a year, but... That includes three or four bands. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. sure. Uh, and sometimes 10, 10 bands if it's a festival or, or whatever. But yeah, yeah, some, sometimes I would see three or 400 different bands a year, basically. So, Photographing them, of course. When someone makes music, they make it probably in their bedroom and then they make it maybe later on with some friends and maybe play at the local pub and then eventually get to the point where they'll be on a stage with you taking photos of them maybe 10, 15, 20 years later. Quite a moment that you get to take photos photos of. But can you describe what attracted you to taking photos of that moment? Um, I think kind of initially being young and and anxious and having needing something to do in the room. I started taking my my camera just to gigs um, and it kind of gave me a mask. Now, it, it gave me a sort of purpose, uh, a reason to be in a room. You know, when I was younger, I, you know, for sort of 16 or 17, I started venturing out and seeing live music. And uh, for, for 101 reasons that every, every teenager has, um, you're always looking for an escape from from whatever makes you feel uncomfortable or makes you feel unsettled or you know which which can be the smallest thing or, or the biggest thing when you're a teenager felt a lot more comfortable than I did on a football field or yeah um, standing on the stage talking mm. um, which later in my life I ended up doing anyway but <laughs> um, yeah I just yeah seeing musicians play, um, particularly getting exposed early on to to local bands, the f- through me being able to take photos that then could could start a conversation with those people that I looked up to. The next time I saw them, I could mm-hmm. say, "Hey, you know, have a look at my photos." Nice, and then I could start talking to the people that I mm. that I looked up to, and uh, yeah. I think everyone knows that feeling of when you're in a room, like what what are you doing there? Like what do people think of you doing there? And then and then how are you gonna sort of 
be yourself in that room. It's, it's almost it's almost like it makes me stand out more. Yeah. Um, but it gets it over and done with. It's yeah. like, hey, I'm here. That's a guy with a camera. He's here to take photos. Okay, I know what he's here for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone else, it's a little bit uncertain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's a, sometimes I've been challenging myself over the last couple of years to stand in a coffee line um, and not necessarily lean on anything or lean on one leg, just literally stand on both legs yep. And, yep. and not pull my phone out of my pocket and stand just no particular posture, but just stand on both legs and stand forwards facing the person in front of me, yep. not talking to anyone, just looking at things. It's really fucking hard. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You've had an interesting life with, you spent a lot of time in the ocean, a lot of time in front of bands. Um, you've, you've got a very fascinating little family unit with your kid and your wife. What, what is life like for you now in its most honest representation? Um, hanging out with my daughter is the most wonderful, beautiful thing that I've ever experienced. Um, during during the prenatal classes, um, the lady that was facilitating the um, the group said that it's impossible to to love your child too much, and that's something that really really rung through to me. It's which doesn't mean spoiling your child. It doesn't mean placing them up on a pedestal or anything like that, which could be a misconception of, of a statement uh, like that. But yeah, just that it's just, it's impossible. You just, just keep, keep loving them. And, uh, but, but apart from hanging out with my wife and my daughter also, um, surfing, obviously, uh, surfing's that, that big one. It's that big switch that we've all got. Um, sometimes I try and remove myself from it, and so I almost have to remove myself from surfing completely to uh, to because it's so over, over consuming, all consuming. I reckon. Why is surfing all consuming compared to other hobbies in your life? Is it because you grew up through your teens like me? It was just everything, or yeah, well, once it's kind, of, it's literally a switch. It's once it's switched on, it's it's a major focus, and I know that other areas of my life will get better from it. But I also know that it will make me time poor in other areas of my life, and that can mean time sacrificing time with with my loved ones and, and my friends. I had a really, really severe surfing accident about, might be about five years ago now, so, something along those lines. Um, and yeah, pretty much smashed, smashed my ankle into some rocks whilst bodyboarding at a reef break. Um, basically destroyed my ankle destroyed it it was like absolutely shattered my foot foot was hanging off the end of my leg um, my exact words 
to, to Mary, my wife, after I managed somehow to scramble up the rocks and call an ambulance and all the things were, hi Mary, I'm really fucked up. <laughs> so what have you done? And I uh, gave us some sort of loose description. Uh, I'm really fucked up or I've really, oh, I fu really fucked up. Oh, I really fucked up. Yeah. So it was a sense of guilt. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, instantly. Uh, surfing is a pretty selfish pursuit. It's a very rewarding pursuit. Um, giving me heaps of happiness in my life. But uh, yeah, I think I think this, we, we sort of touched on this, the obsession um, with surfing mm. and, and how all-encompassing it is. Mm. Um, I was just going through that the last couple of months. Libby's like, you're always surfing. like that. And I, a couple of months before that, I was never thinking about it. It's like a switch, eh? Yeah, totally, totally. And... It's, it's it's a different switch these days. I think I've, I'm not, like I've got my, my favourite waves and stuff and I, I want to surf them when they're good. Not necessarily when they're the biggest and I'm not necessarily searching for the most perfect waves all the time and I haven't got that, the hunt kind of mentality as, as much as I used to, but, and, and far less than yourself, Brendo, and, and, and plenty of other people that I uh, engage with all the time. Um, but it's now that the opportunity to go surfing and know that in any waves, I'm going to have a really good time. Mm. Like, just kind of, with a couple of mates recently, one foot on shore. What better time to go surfing? Cool. Yeah, just just get out there mm. and and hoot and scream at each other that much. There's something beautiful about thirties and forties. It seems where things come alive in in their detail and simplicity. Yeah, that I just didn't recognise when I was nineteen. No, no, it's 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 like a different person. Yeah, it's, it's like I was calling like. Rawlins the other day and said, I'm having so much fun doing cutbacks on two foot waves yeah. on the new board. I yeah. got. It's like, what is that? This feels good, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Just, yeah. I said to someone the other day that I'm surfing the best I've ever surfed, which, and it's all about a scoop and yeah. just, just bottom turning. Yeah. Like getting, getting a nice bottom turn on any wave. Yeah. Two foot waves feels like a ten foot slab to me most of the time anyway, and that's that's just testament to the stoke factor of it all, I Sick. guess. But yeah, no, just just really And I've got a bit of a crew of people I surf with at the moment, uh, which is which is really nice. I've always been a bit of a bit of a boner in, in the ocean. Mm. Um, and yeah, just having that real real stoke factor when it's when it's tiny and it's crap and just Yelling and screaming at each other, and having a blast, mm. basically. Um, Back on the, um, the the down moments of your life, the injury. Yeah, yeah. 
I are fucked up. Was your words? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was the start of the wildest, darkest, most learning time of my life. I was rushed in an ambulance. Initially, I think they were going to take me to Shell Harbour Hospital. Um, And then they ended up taking me to Wollongong Hospital. Um, Still in my wetsuit, still with my flippers on. Do you mind if we just pause there? Because I'm sure plenty of people are going along the chronology of this, hanging on your words. But just to zip it back a little bit, there was a point break on a reasonable size swell under uh, with reef underneath and and you just got what happened on the wave you were scooped into a barrel you're getting no 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 no. far far from it okay what um, what happened i had been shooting photos all morning and then decided to go for a surf went for a surf um it was pumping i'd surf this so you're shooting photos from the water or from the land from the land from the land yeah. yeah with big zoom lens from the car park yeah um, and then, yeah, decided to paddle out for a surf, um, and surfed for I think probably an hour or two and it was pumping. It was like, it was a really good day and, uh, something I've said in another interview about this, I was surfing good that day. And I don't you felt think, good yeah, on your board? Yeah. I was surfing really good. Getting barrels. Getting barrels. Um. Couple of spins in the barrel. Spin in the barrel. Yeah, and like just just pushing it and loving it. Spin in the barrel off the scoop, or just like yeah. as you're going on the wave, off the scoop. Spin. Yeah, wow. Off the scoop, kind of kind of on the end section of this particular wave. That's pretty like, elite, really. Like if if you talk about bodyboarding, spinning in the barrels, really. There's only oh, it's, it's probably only a couple percent of less than one percent of bodyboarders that really find. The ability to speak. Yeah, to yeah, totally, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, getting tubed, having a great time. Then my, I took off too deep. My board, my leash got ripped off my arm. And then my board washed up on the rocks into sort of the keyhole section. Okay. Which keyhole for non-surfers is usually the, the bit where you jump in. Yeah. Um, bit of a safer zone. A keyhole can kind of go from being the safest zone to the most dangerous zone yeah. within seconds. Because waves can rush up there and implode if you jump Ab- at the wrong time. Or Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and my board, the leash of my bodyboard got wrapped around a rock. Um, so I'd run down to the rocks to get my leash and pull it around the rocks. And then another wave would come. So, so you'd up. gone up onto the shore already. Yeah, yeah. Then you just went to get your board. Yeah. And then I was coming backwards and forwards to get my board. And then eventually the wave subsided a bit. And I went and got my board, grabbed my board, put my leash back on. I was a bit rattled by the whole getting my board back situation, which, yeah. which <laughs> proved to be a bit, a little bit, um, a lot more difficult than I expected. Yeah, yeah. Because I was so, so pumped. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to get your board, get your leash get back, back on, paddle back out, yeah. The wind changes yeah, 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 yeah. Tide yeah. gets too high. And it's pumping and you're on a roll. Um, yeah. Photographer out there shooting, shooting Sick. surfing. And yeah. 
I never get photos of me surfing ever. Yeah. <laughs> so you're stuff. pumped. Like maybe you got yeah. a couple of shots already. Maybe a few more to come. Yeah. Yeah. And I was feeling really comfortable. Um, got my leash, put it back on my arm, and then ran out the rocks to 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 where you usually jump off when it's a bit smaller. Um, and it was a kind of dying swell that day, so. Um, Every 20 minutes, half an hour, there was waves probably two or three foot bigger than the rest. Um, so, yeah, I ran out, pump, like, seeing my mates get barreled, like, 20 metres away from, from the rocks. But mm. to get from the rocks to where they're surfing can be a bit of a challenge, as I discovered. Basically jumped off the rocks, duck dived after, under one wave or two. This is kind of all where it gets hazy. Um but yeah, basically a couple of bigger waves were coming. So I kind of started paddling as fast as I could. And then I was like, yeah, no, I'll be sweet. I'll just duck dive through this one. But there was too much water and it didn't break. I was hoping it did because I kind of, for all my years of experience, I know that at least if a wave breaks, if you get under the right spot, it'll suck you back up through and spit you out the back of the wave. Yep. And you've just got to put put your faith and trust in the wave that that's going to yeah. happen. Yeah. <clears throat> Initially it loses all its energy and it bounces and if you get under at that moment, you're good. Yeah. But yeah. what happened? Um, the whole wave, like the whole ocean just surged, just lifted, lifted up and I became part of the ocean basically and had the wave landed the lip landed yet there was no lip imagine imagine like for example chopu in tahiti just before it breaks and you've just got that that big wall of water coming towards you also but but then you put a massive rock in front of it yeah so that it just lifted it oh just, it just surged you yeah so oh I'm, so it didn't you were expecting to break and, yeah. and but it, it actually held up yeah it held up completely okay and didn't you know everyone's seen um, like a ray collins photo or whatever or, yeah. or anyone that takes beautiful shots of the ocean and when, when a wave hits the rocks yeah usually it, it makes a, a big sort of fountain yeah a big spray goes everywhere every now and then you get huge bit of spray and everyone goes whoa yeah um and then the ones in between and sometimes the bigger ones don't actually do that they just wash over yeah but they wash over with a lot of force yeah yeah yes so i'm kind of picturing that's where all the it was kind of at at its max energy because it hadn't imploded yet it had so it had all its energy yeah and you became part of that yeah and then and then i'm not not sure exactly what happened I'm pretty sure that I curled up in a ball because that's instinctively what I do most of the time um, when getting tossed around by waves. Um, but then could feel, pretty sure I could feel some force coming down from above. Um, so I put my feet out to, to, I don't know, stop my back or my spine or my face. or I don't know. I guess it's, it's this is what you do. You're doing shore breaks and stuff all the time. You just like jam your heels down to to stop. Yeah, hundred percent you do. Yeah, and it's kind of almost that thing that you you jam your heels down, and if you feel too much pressure, you, you just use that that foot 
a heel jamming thing just to slow your momentum down yeah, a bit. Absolutely. And I it didn't <laughs> it didn't at all. It just ground my my right ankle. Yeah. Um straight into the rocks. Um initially I used to sort of Re- recall the story as my foot getting jammed in the rocks and I'm sure it could have been a small crevice or whatever but there was no there was no yanking of my foot out of a hole yeah, okay. like those horror stories you hear at Pipeline sure. or, or whatever um, and then I got washed over a sort of a platform of rocks I guess you'd call it um, I like to call it the surgeon's table now so a few people might know where I'm talking about um, and then it threw me back in the ocean, like the, the waves sort of surged back and took me back into the ocean. And I lifted up my leg from sort of just below my knee and, um, sort of held up sort of almost in a, in a yoga pose, um, held, held, held my foot up, um, near my face to see what, what had gone on. Cause obviously I felt a bit of pain. And I thought I just sliced the back of my ankle or something, um, but my, from just above my ankle, the bones were completely shattered. Was there any f- different feeling compared? Because you've obviously had reef cuts and jammed your toes in the reef and done yeah. other little things. Yeah. Was there any different feeling in your body compared to those those feelings? Um, I think as soon as I saw it happen. Like, as soon as I lifted my foot up and saw, I just felt lonely and scared. But suddenly you've become lonely in in your space where you're most in your groove. Yeah. 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 And that, that injury takes you there, right? Yeah. And, it, yeah, it's like, this is, like, my one of my happiest places. Yeah. This is where I go for to solve everything. Yeah. And to suddenly be like, whoa. Hey, you win today, yeah. <laughs> Mother Nature, or, or you know, I don't. I wasn't battling against anyone, so there's no one winning. Yes, the thing that keeps playing over and over in my head is that my knowledge of the ocean allowed me to have this happen, which is there's negatives and positives of it, but also my knowledge of the ocean also allowed me to survive mm. the situation. Yeah, so I did did know that I just wait for the right wave. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> just talking about it now, that's a bit of a, a lump in the throat moment that I had to wait for the ocean to to do what it did in the first place to me, to do it again. Yeah. For me to get back up on the rocks. Yeah. So that that's that's almost unfathomable. Yeah. That that, that, you, that your brain can just go, okay, the ocean's just nearly destroyed me. I've got to wait for it to do that same action again yeah. so I can survive. Yeah. And, yeah, um, that's something I haven't really, really focused on too much. Really beautiful, though, eh? Yeah, yeah, totally. But, yeah, I, I got got up on the rocks and just tried to walk, which is adrenaline and the, the coping fight-or-flight mechanism. Flipper was still brain. on, though, eh? Flipper was still on. Flipper's walking at the best of times is, is a pretty... <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Um, and then fell flat on my face on the rocks because my leg just didn't support me and started 
basically screaming out to a fisherman, like howling, um, help, help, help kind of thing. And uh, some of the, the local guys from the spot where we were surfing said to my mate Elliot, um, I think your mate's just really fucked up. And he's looked over and sort of between the, the sound of breaking waves and all that, could hear me howling mm. and waving. And he's he's basically caught the next wave in, scratched up the bottom of his board, um, come over to suss out what's going on. And he started calling other people in. And paramedics eventually arrived and ran down the rocks. And then I asked for the green whistle. And I've had the green whistle a few times. Uh, I dislocated my shoulder. Surfing at Mackenzie's Bay near Tamarama. A few years ago, and everyone who knows about the green whistle knows it works. Um, sure. They said, no, we're not giving you the green whistle. And I was like, oh, shit. Um, why not? They said, oh, we're giving you something better. And I said, what? And they said, ketamine, um, which is horse tranquilizer. Yeah. Or a um, party drug. Um, and they injected me. It's huge. There's, there's a photo I think I showed you. Yeah. Of me laying on my bodyboard. The syringe there. Yeah. I couldn't actually see the syringe spike on it. Was there yeah. a spike on it at that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. I saw that. Well, I, don't, I think they break that off. In the case they break of, that off, yeah. yeah. I yeah. saw it. I was like, where's the spike? How did they get yeah. it in him? <laughs> um, and then I proceeded to have the most intense psychedelic experience I've ever had in my life. Okay. Like, so it was quite a big dose. Huge dose. And I was floating above the guys on the rocks, mm. like literally mm. 20, 20 meters above, looking down at looking them. Looking down at them. From a sort of like drone helicopter kind of view. And then I was watching them carry me from behind and in front. And I was, you know, obviously whatever they gave me worked. I, so I that, I'm interested in that a lonely experience that you had. We kind of had that. I'm alone. I'm scared. That I know that feeling. It's horrible. Yeah. Um. And did that still sit in the background during this psychedelic moment? Did that feeling still exist there, or or did it no, totally take you away into it a took happier me away. place? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. As with a, a lot of kids growing up in the nineties, I. Uh, experimented a little bit with illicit drugs, and mm. psychedelic LSD mushrooms and things like that. Do you that. think having a little bit of exposure to them prior to that moment settled you a bit more or not? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just knowing that, um, I was getting given something that was really strong and really powerful yeah. that I could submit to it. Cool. Cause that's what I think I'd have trouble cause I haven't taken those drugs that maybe I would be scared and therefore um, send me into maybe um, an anxious or paranoid state. Yeah, yeah, or psychosis, which is yeah. which is which is totally valid. Yeah, um, and I, I wish I, I didn't, but yeah, the acceptance yeah. factor may not have may have been strong in you, which is good. Yeah, and at that point, I was like, whatever that they're they're just giving me, mm. I'm gonna let it take hold. Mm. And apparently, I was laughing and giggling. And um, singing. Um, right. I was pretty calm. Mm. I was pretty, still pretty frothing. 
on the waves of a Benguetti. Great. And I was, yeah, without sounding like the ultimate surfer dude, you know, even when I was laying on the rocks, I was watching the guys get, you know, not everyone had realised what happened and there were still guys getting barrelled. Yeah. <laughs> while I was coming to terms with the fact that I just smashed well, it's, my leg. It, yeah, it's a lovely um, escape that's so deep and strong, the idea of people getting barrelled or someone getting barrelled. I just lately I've been looking at people catching waves on Instagram and I just think, like, I, even if I don't experience it that day or that week, like, there's yeah. that place I can go to where yeah. I can do that. Yeah. It's, well, I, I listen, I've been listening to the um, Dave Rastovich oh, yeah. um, podcast, Water People, recently. And it's, he was doing an interview with, with Albie Falzon, who was the cinematographer director that, that did Morning of the Earth. Um, he's talking about the, the, the psychedelic experience of surfing. Um, there's been studies that show that um, surfers, no matter how inherently spiritual they are, but their acceptance of trauma and their acceptance and understanding of trauma and, and horrible things happening in their life, they can tend to deal with it better. We've mentioned dark times in your life and you've mentioned initially this story of an injury. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's other other little dark moments we can kind of blop into before well, we sort of round out into some of potentially who you are now, where do you stand yeah. in life now? Well, the, the, the mental journey is the biggest thing I can touch on and the mental journey the mental struggles and stuff that I am still going through and did go through. Um, even to say still going through and did go through is weird because I'm sure, as you know yourself, when you go through it, it's such a, a severe mental struggle. You can't, to look back at it now, you, it's unfathomable. I can't like if if I if I'm, you know, when you you have a good day surfing or you see your child, you can conjure that feeling up in your head. But I can't conjure up those feelings, those sad feelings in my head. Not that I want to; they're dark and horrible feelings. But they're they those feelings are to me now untouchable. Like they they they're over there. There, there's somewhere else, and that that could be the fact that I've really accepted a lot of that the things that I was going through and, and, and dealt with them a lot. Um, but yeah, the 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 mental struggle. So it really started with the um, that stage. I was I was really active. Um, and I spent two weeks in hospital waiting for the, the swelling to go down. Uh, I had a giant metal brace uh, fixed to the outside of my leg where they basically screwed screwed bolts through my foot, um, through the upper, upper part of my shin, like a big scaffolding. External fixation is what it's called. Yeah. Um, and I was like 
asking doctors and nurses, oh yeah, when will, when will, when will I be healed? When will I go surfing again? No, they're just like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, but you basically had the equivalent of a motorbike accident or a car accident. Um, you're not going to be surfing. You're not going to be skateboarding. You're probably never running in. All this kind of stuff. And physical activity has always been my, my answer. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. In, in my sort of mid to late 20s, I realized that I've got to exercise all the time. But that's if I'm feeling shit, just go exercise. I think in mid to late 20s, I discovered that too. Can't sleep. Yeah, exercise. Surf, surf for an extra two hours. Yeah, feel sleep. restless. Yeah. yeah, just people call it surf stoned. Yeah. You know, just that, just completely spent. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that, that was my go-to and that's kind of my, my happiest times when you, you know, you've been surfing all day and you're sitting on the lounge and you can't even focus on the TV or the movie that you're watching and you just pass out the lounge before you even have dinner. You're done. So good. It's, 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 it's the best. Um, just knowing that, just getting that overwhelming fear that all that's gone. Um, and obviously being in a, in a narcotic haze as well, when they're telling you all this stuff. So you, you're getting pumped full of morphine. I think I had the morphine button on available to me for like two weeks before my surgery. So just, just pressing it all day. So you're just so, so confused and dazed and, um, yeah, people telling you, you can't, you can't do all these things that you you really love, and that was kind of the first wave of real depression hit me. Mary, my wife, was, was you know obviously having to work every day, and she she, she could then you know, she'd see her for twenty minutes at night time. So he spent a long time alone, Just knowing that a huge part of your life could could be taken away. I'm like, what am I going to do? Being in hospital in in orthopedic ward, I think it was, guy next to me had been, just been diagnosed with cancer after fracturing his back. They found cancer in his back, and I heard them tell him that news. That was pretty confronting. There was a man with severe had dementia to, to some stage. He didn't, mm. didn't know what was going on, and between coughing all night, every night, and then saying, kill me, coughing, and then saying, kill me, coughing, kill me, coughing, kill me, like over and over again mm. um, for weeks, like for the two weeks I was there. And you were there listening, yeah, listening. Falling out of his bed at night time and having to be scooped back up in the bed. Been constipated for two weeks. like Because of the morphine? Or? Morphine, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. Felt felt horrible, and um, but I kind of that was kind of the easy bit in in retrospect. I they gave me what's called a knee scooter, which is like a kid's razor scooter, but it's got a raise raise section um, that you rest your knee on a pad, um, which got me mobile. Um, and okay. at that stage, I was 
still the momentum of my life pre that was pushing me. And I was that the momentum of, of everything that happened in my life up to that point kept pushing me. And I was feeling that momentum and I was like, let's go out, let's let's go to gigs and let's yeah. let's see people and yeah. um I went to my mates one of my close mates fortieths, like I think like two weeks after I got out of hospital. Like went to a party at a pub. Mm. I, I, I had to get one of my mates to to take me home early that night, but you know, I was still like getting out there and mm. I, I photographed a, a yours and ours festival. It was a big music festival in Wollongong on it on my knee scooter. Mm. I remember if I had a cast on or my big metal frame on or on that stage or whatever. But I was I was just sort of back out there getting stuff done. Um looking forward to healing and looking forward to to um, being able to walk again and, and or, or move to some capacity. But um, as I started healing from, from the initial injury, the, the actual gravity of not being able to do things and, you know, it's very well to sort of say, you can't do these things, get sad about it. But then to actually try and do the things that you've always done and not actually be able to do them. Mm. Um, and even going to the toilet and stuff, like I need to go to the toilet, plan and execute. Yeah. When you're going to go to the toilet, like, uh, okay, I'm, I need to go to the toilet, but it could hurt really badly. So I'll wait and then and end up end up busting the other toilet and then yeah then you're getting more anxious and then you end up tripping all the way down the hallway and falling over to go to the bathroom and end up really pissing yourself on the floor. Mm. Like it's it's that's the real part of it. Yeah. Um it's the whole timeline line of it's hazy, but um I was on Endone for a long time. Um I was on Valium for a long time. I was on tramadol for a long time. I was on Tarjan for a long time. And these are all serious drugs, serious, seriously addictive drugs. Um, as much Panadine for as they could give me. Um, at that stage, I could go to a doctor and say, I've run out of Valium on a Tuesday when he'd give me a script for Valium on a Friday. And he, he would give them another bottle like because the injury was so bad mm. and what I, the pain was horrible like the pain was intense um constant constantly intense pain um and people people say all the time oh need to sleep pop a valium need to sleep have a painkiller i i had a paradoxical effect when i when i was taking these tablets I wasn't sleeping. Like they were putting me in this like hazed out mm-hmm. state where I was having hour sleeps at night time, two hour sleeps in the morning, one hour sleep in the afternoon, and no no significant long time of sleep. And that um you know, I'd take I'd take a painkiller to 
to relieve the pain and it'd take the pain away, but then I'd be awake all night. I'd, I'd see Mary some mornings and she'd come into my room. So obviously we had, had separate rooms because the, the metal scaffolding on my leg at that stage was scratching her at night time. I used to, I used to shred the sheets, yeah. shred my doona, yeah. like rolling around at night time. Um, it's like, oh, you're up early. I was like, I'd be lying in bed, like completely wired, completely off my head. I'm like, no, I haven't slept yet. And it's like, I've just watched 10 episodes or 15 episodes of a TV show. Just, and then she'd go, oh, I'm going to walk the dog. And I'd get up and go walk the dog with her. And then she'd go to work and I'd have a weird, hazed out, confused day. And it just went on for ages. And, I, I dipped into the kind of, and I, I, you can see it, you can see it in opiate addicts, whether it be using heroin or tablets or even switching to methadone, um, it just, it can just turn you into someone who has no self-worth becomes all consuming. It provides you with everything. Um, it provides you with love, safety, warmth, comfort. So the drug does. Yeah. And I lost the ability to feel that from other people. Yeah. I lost the ability to ask for help. I, thought that I was a burden. I thought, I thought that I was a massive burden to everyone around me. Um, I didn't want to ring anyone up to ask them to take me to the shops. I didn't want to ring up anyone and say, do you want to come over and hang out? Cause I'm feeling down. I just completely retreated. Well, what was Mary like through this? Um, Supportive to a point, but I kind of, I got to a point where myself, I had no self-worth. I had no real, and because I was, because uh, I had no self-worth, I wanted to present to everyone else that I had no self-worth. So I tried to convince my wife that I was worthless. I was like, can't you see? You know, you know, it's delusional. Can't you see? Like, this is a sack of shit yeah. lying here. They can't do anything, can't achieve anything. It's so sad and depressed that I'm actually making your life worse and trying to convince her that. And that was the haze that I was in. And I, I, she got to a point where she had to look after her own mental struggle, her, her own mental health and looking after me. Um, well, she had to, to, to draw barriers and sort of say to me, I can't help you. Um, professional scan. Like I'm, I, she she she'd gotten she'd gotten advice from from mental health professionals and stuff that she can't 
solve my problems and she doesn't need to step into that role. There's, there's hundreds, or not necessarily hundreds, but the, if you find the right people, you can get the help. Mm. Um, something I've, I've spoken to a lot of people that have had mental health struggles that it's just like, I can't believe I thought that way. When you look back on it, like, like I know I've had some of the darkest thoughts in my life in that time, but I don't know what they were. <laughs> and I remember them feeling so real, like, like so real, like that, that I'd worked everything out and what I'd worked out that I was completely useless. <laughs> and, and I was so convinced of it. Um, I'd been prescribed antidepressants during this time. Um, I started to put a weight, completely lost sexual function. Um, my sleep patterns were all over the shop, all kinds of weird stuff like that. I was going to have to sort of start learning to accept the pain and get off the drugs basically. I was taking that I was getting prescribed by professionals and got prescribed the whole way through knowing that um, stopping those kind of drugs is can be life-threatening um, the doctors sort of saying oh, okay we'll just we'll just wind you down on these drugs slowly over a period of time um, that that wasn't working um, so then there's a couple of almost suicidal episodes in around this time and uh, getting myself locked up in the psych ward in Wollongong Hospital, um, trying to convince them that I needed to be locked up. Um, and they're going, no, there's nothing wrong with you. I was like, yeah, there's stuff wrong with me. I need to be. I just. Because you were afraid of what you'd do to yourself or not? No, no, I never really got, I never got to that point. I got more to don't want to be here stage, not, not executing any plans or yeah, any, yeah, not yeah, working yeah. on any plans. So had, what was your exit. intent behind um, signing yourself up for the ward? I just wanted to be looked after. You wanted people to care for you? Yeah. Like I kind of felt like if I didn't take the tablets or whatever at that stage, that I was in that heavier stage of psychosis that I, like, I might die. Or the withdrawals might be so bad that I'd go crazy, do something, do something dangerous. But I uh, realised I needed to get off the tablets and kind of gave myself about a month of just getting myself off endone, which is oxycodone, oxycodine, whatever they call it, um, the big thing that's causing all the problems in America. So I got myself off the endone pretty quickly with a fair few panic attacks and Looking at it in, in hindsight, probably led to a fair amount of my sort of heavier psychotic episodes. Um, I found out I had to get off um, off the Valium because that just it wouldn't go away, and it was only providing relief for about fifteen minutes. Um, and then yeah, started trying to find a detox clinic or a drug rehab or something that would look after me so somewhere I could go um, to, to rid myself of this shit um, ringing up drug and alcohol 
detox centres at that stage. I think it's changed ever so slightly now for them saying, okay, ice, heroin, alcohol, no, no, um, benzos, valium, dazepam. Right, yeah, we don't really do that. A couple of days of just ringing and ringing and ringing and ringing. Different detox and rehab centres um, eventually got a call back from someone at the Concord Hospital and said, um, if you can get in by tomorrow morning, we'll take you in, take you in for a week. Um, I was like, okay, a week. So I didn't understand what that meant. And basically at that stage, eight Valiums a day or seven Valiums a day or something was what I was taking. And they just went, okay, seven days. Pretty sure it was a Wednesday that I went in. I was pretty sure it was a Wednesday I came out. Um, Strange that I remember that. I remember that pretty clearly. Um, they're like, oh, on the first day, we're going to give you your eight Valiums. Next day, we're going to give you seven, six, five, four, three, two, one to the last day. I said, what happens next? And they're like, you go home. I was like, whoa. Or you go into rehab for three months or six months, um, which is something I considered. Um, and then spent spent a week in a detox clinic with uh, heroin addicts, ice addicts, severe alcoholics. Like I'm talking a lady that drank three casks of wine every day. The reason why she's in there is because she walked out in front of a bus. Like I found her completely disoriented. Um, yeah, basically hanging out with drug addicts and alcoholics, which I was one of them. No, I, mm. I wasn't. I wasn't observing them. <laughs> I was observing them, but I was. You know, we were all equals. We're all there. Mm. We're all there for the same reason. Um, and it was a voluntary, voluntary detox center. It was a place you could go. You could leave whenever you wanted. But you were there by choice. So there was a a sense of camaraderie between some of the people there that we had a mutual respect that we're all some people that were there to um, comply with parole violations and things it was like if, if you if you stuff up while you're in here you're going to jail kind of thing so I had a young lady trying to stab someone quite close to me because he'd snuck in some heroin, got high, and then come out in front of everyone high. Mm. And then someone was stealing someone's can of Coke and someone stole someone else's can of Coke and whatever, and they're throwing hot coffee over each other. And then, um, I heard some pretty full-on stuff, you know. Um, saw a fair amount of blood and all that kind of thing. Um, um, had a couple of visits from different health professionals where we'd all sort of sit around and talk, as you can imagine, you know, the, the stereotypical drug counselling situation. Um, and we had one night, we had Narcotics Anonymous come in, a guy from Narcotics Anonymous, wearing a tool jumper, shaved head, and he sat us all down and told us his story. 
and he brought every single person in that room to tears. Mm. Every single person in that room was completely floored by what he said. He was a heroin user, but he got a hepatitis and he's, his liver something shut down and he, he had to get it removed. Mm. His, his turning point was the surgery that he went through mm. to get his liver removed or, or his kidneys or whatever. He said it was just like like getting hit by a bus 20 times over and over again. That was his turning point. That's when he realised. That's when he stopped. He, he spoke to us that night and he, he unfolded some pretty dark truths about himself. And I, that was kind of part of my... Part of the reason why I'm here now talking to you is learning. From hearing that guy talk that night, I kind of learnt the value of talking therapy. Mm. Um, he spoke in a language that we all understood. He didn't hold back from swearing. He just kind of laid it all out mm. and just didn't didn't give a fuck, basically, mm. from start to finish. Mm. Um, and he was he was just touching on things like if you remove these things from your life, then they never ever be the cause of something bad happening in your life you've eliminated those things from bad things will happen in your life bad things aren't going to happen associated to taking those Mm. drugs and I sort of had my light bulb moment then and I'd been to a detox clinic earlier in, in life and I when I was in a detox clinic, then I used to just imagine duck diving away. And that's, that was my thing that got me through everything. It's just that feeling of looking up, like like the Nutri-Grain packet on the ad with the water splashes over it. Yeah. Um, but this time was really focusing on my house where I live in Austinmere, which is up in a, basically in a rainforest. Um, just imagining the view there. Imagine the feeling of calm and peace that I had at home. But by being completely levelled by all these people from totally different demographics, socioeconomic backgrounds and stuff, and knowing that I was two steps away, even though I was them, and that we were all equal in that room, I was one or two steps away from being in that situation, being... Being like them full time, I didn't think anyone loved me anymore. I think my parents loved me. I didn't think my friends loved me. I was pretty much, I was in a detox clinic with people saying, I get paid on Tuesday, you get paid on Wednesday. Let's all chuck in together. We get a grand together, we get this much heroin. And a few wrong decisions, that's what I could have been doing. Yeah. You know, towards the end, knowing that I was going to go home and saying to all the other people there that I was going, uh, I, why, where are you going? I'm going home. Why are you going home? How are you going to do it? I was like, I've got too much to lose. I I realised that I had way too much to lose. I realised that all the decisions that I'd made in my life led me to the fact that a year and a half, two years before this, 
even though it was unfortunate that my dad had passed away and the only reason why I could purchase a house because the unfortunate loss of my dad. Even though I've made a million shit decisions in my life, I hadn't made enough shit decisions that I was in debt for a hundred grand so that when my dad passed away, I paid off my debts and had nothing. I was debt free enough that when I got an inheritance, that I could pay off my house and started gaining a bit of perspective on my life and looking at other people's lives focusing on my life um, with them and sharing stories, realising, you know, something that we talked about earlier, how how good I did have it and if I could just push through it, I could I could um, I could get there. Um, still no sleep. One of one of the, the horrible side effects of um, withdrawals from benzos um, is a thing called brain zaps where um, you could be walking down the street and you get like an electric shock from the top of your brain all the way through your body. Like it can feel like someone's just slapped you on the back of the head or just got stung by a blue bottle or one of of those really sort of um, unannounced interruptions that's really horribly painful. Um, No sleep, sweating for months and months and months. hallucinating all the time and then just started repeating the same things that used to make me happy and they weren't making me happy I started by this stage I ditched the walking stick um I could swim and I could I could surf um and I could work and I started photographing gigs again and I didn't enjoy it. It was like, because of the, the, the drug withdrawals, the lights were too bright and the music was too loud and the people were too standing too close to me and I wasn't drinking alcohol, so I felt like an outsider and it was horrible. And once again, going back to the place that I loved was now like the ocean. And, and, and being a music venue was was, was horrible, and I, I I just yeah it was it was yuck. But I was finding some joy in it. I don't know because I'd done it so many times, and I thought if I just keep doing it, then maybe I'll enjoy it again. And um, that did happen. That happened with all. It happened with everything. It happened with music. It happened with shooting photos, it happened with surfing, it happened with hanging out with my friends. I mean, I, I listen to music non-stop, all the time, always have. I've even had flatmates like, do you listen to music from when you wake up to when you go to sleep? Like, yeah, everyone does. No, 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 they don't. Wait, really? <laughs> um, but, I'm fascinated. Yeah, Mary, Mary said to me, like, about three months after I got out of rehab, you're listening to music. Like, I actually put a record on. Like, that was like, whoa, I'd spent all this time just feeling so worthless that I didn't think I deserved music to make me happy or, or whatever, whatever it was. Um, but yeah, somehow I just, 
repeated things over and over again. A big thing I learned through a psychologist and and the um, talks with Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous is that it was time for me to start finding a new path. And I talked about the fact that I walked in the bush. Psychologist said, okay, so you walk to the, imagine you walk to the beach through the bush and you've got the same path that you've walked down a million times. Um, and it's easy to get to the beach, but there's a beach around the corner that's got heaps better waves. <laughs> She's literally put it to me that way. It's got heaps better waves, but there's no path there yet. You're going to have to like break some branches down. You're going to have to go down there with a, it's the big thing, machete. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and tread some branches down and clear a path. And it's going to be kind of hard. There's going to be a bit of land time and it's going to scratch you up on the way. But that's that's where you're at at the moment. And you're going to have to have to do that. And that's kind of, that's what I started doing. And in retrospect, yeah, I just, not not saying hallelujah, I'm healed or anything. But um, that was one of the major things that, that got me through got me back and, you know funny thing what you know even thinking she's saying you're walking to the beach you've got to find a new path and then some days I'm like I can't fucking walk <laughs> you know yeah those hopeless times yeah but you're talking about walking down a new path and like fucking have trouble walking you know? yeah um but yeah somehow somehow I've I kept going through all of that. That's um, kind of that sort of chapter in my life in in in, in a nutshell a bit. Um, yeah. I'm interested in those little moments where you said you transitioned from just repeating activities you used to like to getting glimmers of joy from those activities again. Are there any moments where you can quickly in the next two or three minutes, maybe one moment where you, we started to get some of that lovely life back from that activity or that thing? Was it a different path you had to go to to experience that thing? Or what was there a moment or a feeling or a sensation or a hope that got you back into that basket of fun or joy? I think this is this is kind of hard hard to put into words. The the understanding, the talking to you now, and my belief in timelessness <laughs> and the fact that everything's happening now is that those points in time where I did feel joy. Yeah, I am recognising them now. And, and I guess you're asking me that question. When are those points? Part of finding out those points, I think, is, is you asking that question, number one. But the, the wisdom and knowledge and the gift of being through something, going through something tumultuous and unfortunate 
is I can identify joy. Now, more of a feeling that <laughs> transcends time. It sounds like I'm off my head, <laughs> but it's more about no moments. And it's, I guess, um, pinpoint of time now. That's like, I, I think I experienced joy. I, I have experienced joy and, and, and happiness from those things during that time. But a lot of those feelings pale in significance to where my head's at now because I have a profound understanding of what feeling good feels like. I think that's been a just a journey. So I really appreciate it. I know that's that, that's deep and long and vulnerable, but like that's that's been a real pleasure. So thanks for joining me on the Grace Space. Thank you, thank you very much, Brendo. Um, yeah, there's a there's a chunk. <laughs> <laughs>